Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm excited about the guest that we have today. You know, he's a, a foreigner, you know, just like myself coming to the to this wonderful country, to the U.S. He's built, he's sold, you know, a, a couple of companies. He's now on his next uh, hyper-growth journey. And he also knows a thing or two about pattern recognition when it comes to angel investing. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Dimitri Sirota. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So originally from the Ukraine, and then you kind of like jumped a little bit from country to country. So tell us, how was your experience kind of like, you know, being raised and, and growing up? Yeah, well, I was an infant when I left the Ukraine, so not not much to share about that, although I may take my father back there just to kind of revisit. Uh, so first memory is really in Israel, where um, I grew up up until the age of about five. And then uh, ended up in Canada, Winnipeg, Manitoba, for those in your audience familiar with uh, the flattest place in Canada, uh, and grew up uh, there through high school before attending university in Montreal and then later grad school in Vancouver. And what got you into physics, Dimitri? What got me into physics? You know, I was fascinated by space. Uh, I loved science fiction. Uh, I loved the possibilities of uh, the universe and science. And so physics seemed like a good place uh, to be. So then, so then I see here that after you did, you know, all of these uh, different stints and, and, and getting your studies, you had your first gig at TELUS and you were doing business development. So it's interesting that, you know, someone that comes, you know, from the, the engineering background and, you know, the science, you know, type of uh, perspective, you know, like you're here like selling. So, so how was that transition for you? You know, it was surprisingly easy. Even in my high school yearbook, I intended to do graduate uh, work in physics and then become an entrepreneur. I think that was always kind of my my roadmap, as they as they say in product management. Um, so I didn't really deviate that much from it. I, I studied physics. I didn't really see myself being a, a career physicist in academia. Uh, while interesting and fascinating, uh, you know, it was probably not fast paced enough for my my tastes. Um, and so I wanted to find a path towards starting a company. I didn't really have any particular idea as to what I would do uh, when I left uh, academics kind of in 1995, 1996. And um, uh, the internet was just happening. I think uh, the Mozilla browser was just uh, 
launched maybe 97, 98. And uh, TELUS, which was a regional carrier, was trying to build out an internet strategy. And so I was one of a few people that they tapped and said, look, help us uh, figure this internet thing out. And as it happens, uh, the year, year and a half I was there, so not too, too long, uh, was a springboard to starting my first company because everybody I started my company with actually was the same age as me and was a, a, also a TELUS with me. So then just out of curiosity, how old were you when, when you started eTunnels? I started eTunnels at 28. I was chomping at the bit to do something. It felt like everybody was starting a company back in uh, 98. The internet was hot. You already had a few companies uh, like eBay and others going public. Uh, and it seemed anything was possible. And so I uh, got together with a couple of other folks that I was working with. Uh, and as much as I like TELUS, it was a great opportunity uh, for somebody young. Uh, it just seemed exciting to go out and, and, and build something from nothing. So how was that day, you know, where you finally say, I'm going to go after eTunnels? And, uh, you know, how did you recruit, you know, these, these team members? Yeah, so, you know, the, uh, tell us my job was really about uh, helping to facilitate um, other service providers to buy things that carriers have, whether it's fiber optics, whether it's back then it was dial-up um, uh, modems, things of that sort. And just as we were embarking on this idea, we realized that there was going to be a new generation of service providers. Uh, back then they called them CLEX, Competitive Local Exchange Carriers. And these groups were going to need services, security services, VPN services, things to sell to small businesses and to consumers. And so we were kind of doing something similar, uh, but for ISPs in British Columbia and Alberta. And we thought there was an opportunity to do something over the Internet to appeal to these new groups. So myself and my two co-founders were, were both at TELUS. In various capacities, I was more in a business development strategy role. Uh, the uh, my co-founders were more in a technology uh, service provider role. So it just seemed like a good fit. And so we thought through what this would look like, um, built out a plan, went to fundraise with some local uh, funds, and you know, got we were fortunate enough to get interest almost right away. And uh, yeah, raised a little bit of money enough to get going, and then. Um, uh, kind of started building a company in both Vancouver and very quickly soon after that in Seattle. Because what was the business model of eTunnels? So as the name probably suggests, we focused on helping organizations build point-to-point uh, -point and multi-point kind of branch office VPNs. So at that time, VPN services were still pretty pricey and still pretty novel. Um, a lot of the local exchange carriers uh, wanted to have some of those flexible so you could accommodate People dialing in from home, which, believe it or not, at that time was still uh, relatively new, as well as people coming in from branch offices all over as, as folks started uh, traveling and working from home. And so we came up with a, with a new architecture to allow people to essentially dial in uh, with a secure channel uh, from home, from, from travel, uh, from a branch office without a lot of capital expense, without big infrastructure that you needed to build out in your uh, point of presence. And so that was the proposition. Uh, we threw in a couple of other things in there, like storage a la box, uh, thinking that people may want to have a shared drive, um, like SMB or NFS for, for those in your audience. And that was, that was it. We basically got started 
uh, started engineering in Vancouver, uh, raised some seed capital, um, then very quickly realized we needed to have a presence in the U.S. Uh, myself and a couple of other folks branched out. We opened an office in Seattle. And over a course of kind of two and a half years, grew that to maybe 75 people. Um, and that was uh, eTunnels, basically secure secure networks over the Internet. You know, one thing that, that I was just present to, Dimitri, is uh, we're both in New York City, but you know, in the in the late '90s, you know, I, I can't even imagine because in New York City the startup ecosystem was almost non-existent. I mean, I've seen it develop like crazy in the past ten years. But in the late '90s, you know, I can't even imagine, you know, people like putting money as they're putting it now in in startups. So was it in Vancouver like that challenging to really get that first money in? You know what? Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. So Vancouver has never been uh, known for having a large capital base. Even today, I think there's very few kind of professional investors. Having said that, Vancouver has always had a history of speculative money. So it's known more for kind of mining money. It's known for um, uh, nowadays, I think there's like blockchain, things of that sort. There's always been a group of folks in Vancouver that were willing to take a chance and a risk. And so we were able to attract some of those, uh, enough of those for us to kind of start building a business. Eventually, we did raise venture capital in 2000. Unfortunately, we raised it right before the markets turned and the markets kind of started falling apart. Um, but it was an exciting time and we were young. We were in our late 20s. Uh, everything seemed possible. Everything seemed like it was going to go go up until, of course, it didn't. And, um, you know, they talk about kind of black swan events. And in the early internet, that market crash that started kind of bubbling in the summer of 2000 and carried over into the kind of the telco crash in early part of 2001 was really that kind of black swan event. But but prior to that, look, it seemed like it was an exciting time. We were we were young. We were hiring. We were growing. We had a lot of interest. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And I know that um, and Dimitri, you know, the first experience is always the um, the most challenging one because it's kind of like the uh, not only you have the the challenge of of building, you know, and scaling something from nothing, but also the the fact that you are learning it how to do it for the very first time in your life. So, so I guess the um, what was I would say the, the because I know that for you this specifically this this initiative or this first time you know journey was challenging. So tell us a little bit about you know some of those dark moments and and what were some of those big learnings that you got out of them. Yeah, so some of them are very typical kind of startups. So while we were able to raise money, we never raised a large chunk of money. So we always raised enough to make payroll or to make three payrolls. So we were always living hand to mouth. So that was always a challenge. Um, you had three young friends um, who you know never built a company, uh, had only worked together for a short amount of time. So dealing with some of that politics of basic, basically having a company comprised of three friends in their 20s, and a bunch of their friends, also in their 20s, uh, to me today, you know, being in my 40s and looking at my older son, who's almost 20, and thinking, I would not trust him with a lot of money. And so <laughs> you had a lot of that kind of dynamics. Um, right. There were a lot of interesting stories. Again, you know, there was no blueprint. The internet was still relatively new. You had a few companies in Silicon Valley that were kind of racing ahead, and everyone was trying to kind of follow in their footsteps. 
but it was exciting. So as, as hard as it was, you know, at the end of the day, I didn't have a mortgage. Uh, I didn't have children yet, although I did by the end of the company. Um, you know, we had some funny anecdotes. We actually, believe it or not, I remember um, we had an employee named Elizabeth Tunnel. And her email was etunnel at etunnels.com. <laughs> um, so, um, but yeah, you know, it was, it was in hindsight, obviously looking back now, it was fun. Um, but there were hard moments. And, you know, one of the, the biggest regrets, believe it or not, less than a year into the company, we actually were offered an acquisition by a publicly traded NASDAQ security company. And we were not interested. And, you know, thinking back, we would have all been millionaires many times over in our 20s. And yet we believed that we were going to be huge. We were going to be bigger. And so we held out. And of course, when the market turned, uh, you know, there was nothing but regret. But but those were the times, right? They were all kind of go, go. And uh, we went, went. Got it. So then I see that... Uh you know, later in 2002, because your next company, you started it in 2003. So in 2002, in January, you decide to leave eTunnels. Why? You know, so <laughs> the decision was made for me. Uh, so, uh, you know, after the market turned, we tried to recast the company. Our strategy had always been to raise enough to sell to service providers, Overnight, a lot of the service providers that we were selling to, like at work, COVID, North Point, names that you pretty much need history books to, to recall, disappeared. A lot of the people kind of left. There was this kind of cratering in the service provider space almost overnight. This is the era when a lot of those kind of equipment vendors kind of started, started uh, disappearing. Um, and so we had to reposition. And so we had to go direct. We had to find a new business plan, a new proposition. We had to raise new money uh, to be able to go direct and acquire customers directly. So we did all of that. And we actually attracted money from TELUS, as it turned out. Uh, and then, you know, we ended up um, having challenges with our investors who didn't really want to take the money at the terms. And then we basically spent it, spent a protracted amount of time kind of debating and discussing. Um, our investors at that time wanted to take a very different course from what I wanted to take. And the decision was made to basically, you know, this was not going to be a fit for me. Uh, they kept going, uh, yeah. but I decided to kind of do something what I thought was going to be more exciting. And where my company on the eTunnel side was focused on the on layer three, right? VPN, network security, network um, transmission, a lot of the folks I was talking to at that time were saying, look, all the action is going to be at layer seven at the programmatic uh, uh, at the programmatic uh, layer of the OSI stack. And so uh, I got more and more interested. And I think when it seemed like we were not really getting agreement between me and my investors from eTunnels, uh, saw an opportunity to do something new. And so uh, basically uh, left eTunnels. And within three months, uh, joined forces with another person that I knew and put together kind of an outline of a business uh, that was focused on layer seven of the OSI stack and essentially allowing companies to connect and stitch together applications over the internet to build composite applications, leveraging APIs and web services and all of these emerging standards. And that became layer seven technologies, which was my second company. 
So Layer 7 Technologies is born. But before we go into it, the biggest, the one biggest single lesson that you learned from eTunnels, what was that? You know, I think there was a lot of lessons in terms of working with investors, uh, especially when you don't see eye to eye. There was a lot of lessons with, with working with partners and co-founders. There was a lot of lessons with working with employees. Um, it was really the first time that I had staff. Uh, it was the first time that we had a lot of money and we had to kind of deal with our own uh, kind of inner politics. We were all young. Um, so I think there is, there's certainly regrets. Uh, I think that there's a, you know, as, as youth, there's youthful indiscretions in terms of how you relate and behave around others, uh, lessons that you kind of take to heart and, and, you know, fortunately they were manifest in, in layer seven and, and certainly in big ID. Um, but look, you know, I think that's the reality of, uh, when you're young, um, you're sometimes impetuous, uh, you sometimes want everything immediately. You're sometimes less willing to compromise. And I think those lessons were kind of taken to heart. And I think they became, again, uh, real in uh, in my later experiences, both Layer 7 and Big ID. Got it. So let's talk about Layer 7. So uh, obviously you meet this individual, you guys start brainstorming, and then finally you you know this idea comes to fruition and you guys decide to, um, to go at it. So what ended up uh, being the business model here? So the business idea was really about selling almost kind of what, what you're familiar with in layer three, firewalls, VPNs, but in layer seven. Now, layer seven is, and for those who still remember the OSI stack, is about the application layer. And right before we started, there was a lot of talk that at some point you're going to create these kind of small, discrete applications, and you're going to be able to build broader application systems by just stitching them together. So think of like moving away from mainframes into web services, or as today, that's kind of evolved into microservices. Um, and so that was the idea, but you needed infrastructure, you needed plumbing to make that possible, things that were analogous to a firewall and a VPN, but operating at layer seven. So things that essentially allowed you to connect your API to another API to share data, share information, and make those two systems talk to one another. So we described it as basically networking for the application network, and we thought this was going to be the future. And as it turned out, it was. However, the future was further out than we we planned. Uh, we felt it was going to be imminent. And candidly, it took a lot longer uh, for that reality to actually um, become, become reality uh, many more years. And I could certainly happy to talk about that journey of wandering the desert until we finally found um, uh, kind of mana and nourishment and, and a market for what we were doing. Yeah, no, let's definitely talk about what was that experience or what, how challenging were those days until you finally hit it on, on product market fit? Because for some people, it takes months. For others, it takes years. And for others, they are never able to achieve product market fit. So what do you think was that breakthrough moment for you guys that really led you to finally hit it on the nerve? You know, to some degree, it was stubbornness. It was a refusal to believe that we were wrong, um, or at least in my case, it just seemed it, it just seemed like the market was going to appear, but it just the timing was not there. So when we started, part of the proposition was that you were going to have to build these composite applications, these systems that allowed you to you know connect data and systems together over APIs or web services, as they were called at that time. The challenge we found is that 
buyers were just reluctant to do that. They didn't see the impetus. They didn't see the driver. And they only really saw the light when something happened in the market that forced forced this reality. And that's something, there's actually two somethings. So one was one that the audience will know very well, which is Amazon Web Services, right? It's got web services, which is really talking about APIs right in the name. And that's started getting going around 2006. And then soon after uh, the smartphone, when we describe as kind of like iPhone version one, when you started having this nominal notion of applications on devices, and of course, if you're familiar from an architecture standpoint, those applications are like little apps that are on your phone that are calling other apps over APIs um, over the internet. And so all of a sudden, there was this kind of um, two-cycle event where the cloud came into being, and the way you connect to the cloud is over APIs. And then smartphones came into beings with their app ecosystem uh, that also required APIs. And all of a sudden, APIs became relevant. Prior to that, I think a lot of companies didn't really understand why you would use these APIs. They were reluctant to spend the money. There was no compelling event. And then with cloud and then smartphones or mobility, the compelling event emerged. And funnily enough, you know, we were kind of steadfast to some degree, you know, really kind of introducing product maybe in early 2004. And there was a period of kind of two, three years where, you know, we struggled to, to get interest from, um, from buyers. But almost, uh, you know, magically around 2007, 2008, business started picking up. Uh, people got it. People that were uh, introducing initiatives around uh, mobility, people that were looking to start connecting to Amazon initially, later Salesforce through APIs, got it. And all of a sudden, you know, after kind of wandering the desert for uh, three, four years trying to find an audience, uh, it clicked. And we were able to build the business. And I think when we sold, we were close to $40 million in revenue. Um, and we just kind of year after year were able to build this business organically. Wow. I mean, three to four years in the desert is, uh, is quite a, a bit of time until you find the water. So I guess the, um, you know, what was, what was one day, you know, that you remember that uh, it was probably the hardest one for you during this time? And how were you able to kind of like pull out of it? I could, re I could recall years. Um, and, and it does speak to perseverance, right? I think as an entrepreneur, one of the, one of the most important qualities, um, is that kind of a stick to itness, right? I think at the end of the day, investors want somebody that has a confidence and a commitment. They don't want you just kind of putting your finger up in the air and saying, I think I'll go right today. I think I'll go left tomorrow. So obviously they want vision, uh, but they want some ability to have confidence. Now, clearly everyone knows terms like pivot and so forth. And there are situations and times uh, where it makes sense to do that. The challenge with us is that we felt that everything was kind of still on the horizon. The thinking that kind of formed the basis for Layer 7 uh, and the kind of the, the fact, fact pattern hadn't really changed. It's just that there was no catalyzing event. And I think those lessons actually, uh, what I learned from that whole experience is you need that catalyzing event. And that became kind of a, you know, some of my thinking process for Big ID later 
in thinking through, okay, how do you create that purchase? How do you create a catalyzing, crystallizing event that accelerates the purchasing? Because it's always hard in technology to time the market. Very few companies get it right. We've all heard stories about Airbnb being too early and you know, and um, uh, Pinterest, which recently went public. It takes time sometimes for people to grok or get what you mean or why they need it. And I think, again, you know, wherever possible, it helps to be able to stick to it or pivot slightly or alternatively um, be able to find a business that has that kind of catalyzing event that uh, creates a forcing function for, for buyers. Right. And, and in your guys' case, how much money did you raise for Layer 7? You know what? Because I was still in Vancouver, not much. I think in the history of the company over the entire nine years, we raised maybe $18 million. Um, you know, Vancouver at that time, I think it's changed a little bit since, uh, since I've left. But there just wasn't a lot of venture capital base. Um, you know, the amounts raised were smaller. The amount you had to sell for that smaller amount was larger. Uh, there just wasn't a lot. And so we were forced to be a lot more... Uh, judicious about how we spent the money. And I think we were actually profitable uh, for the final four years of the company, four or five years, because we just didn't have the luxury of being able to go to San Hill Road and raise a big pool of capital and, uh, you know, and grow inorganically, if you will. So what was that day when you came back home and you finally, you know, said, we're going to make it? You know, I think it, it's after we crossed... Um, uh, 2010. Um, you know, we exited in 2013. You know, by 2009, despite the economy being in recession, if you may, may recall, this was kind of after the 2008 crisis. Yeah, people were already starting to invest in mobility and cloud. Right, that was something people talked about, and both ideas required you to be able to leverage APIs to build connectors. Now, obviously, some companies in that space did phenomenally well. MuleSoft is a great example. Apogee is another. Uh, you know, some, some did poorly. We were kind of in the middle. Um, but, you know, things started taking shape. Customers started getting it. Um, analysts started getting it. Um, you started getting magic quadrants, which is always helpful because that's a signal to buyers that there's a category. Um, there's conferences dedicated to it. So everything started converging around 2000. And, you know, and truthfully, the years 2000, uh, sorry, 2010, 2010, 2011, 2012 were pretty good years. Business was growing. The company was growing from a staff standpoint, from a revenue standpoint. Um, and yes, things started kind of turning our way. And then at what point, because obviously, you know, you were alluding to it, you know, CA Technologies ended up acquiring the business. but I would, I would assume that there was a, at one point, you know, there was perhaps a discussion at a board level. You know, you obviously had raised the 18 million that you were uh, referring to earlier, but you probably had to take it to the board to really reach a decision on whether or not you guys were going to go through the M&A, you know, route and, and, and so forth. So, so why did you guys decide that, that, that M&A was the way to go and what was that process? What did that process look like for you? Yeah. So, you know, we had a couple of options. We could have continued. We had options for raising. But, you know, this was before the big inversion. Today, I think you see private fundings that are valued uh, kind of more richly than, um, than acquisitions. 
At that time, the fundings were still a little bit lower. So, um, you know, the exit would have actually offered us a sizably a premium over what uh, we were seeing in the market in terms of companies at our stage and so forth. So that was a consideration. Um, you know, the fact that we were nine years or at that time when we were kind of uh, contemplating this eight years in was a consideration, right? I think uh, investors need to return capital to their investors and LPs. So there's a number of considerations. You know, me, myself, I also wanted to move to the States. And in particular, I wanted to move to New York. Um, we had other interested uh, parties out of the out of the Bay Area. But I personally wanted to move to the East Coast. And I was getting, you know, I was in, I think I was 40 years old and felt that I wasn't going to have too many more opportunities to do that. So I think it was a confluence of factors that contributed to us deciding that maybe this is the right time. Um, you know, it would have uh, resulted in a great return. In fact, I think we were the venture capital company of the year uh, in Canada. We were the BC technology company of the year. So while the numbers in, you know, by the standard of American uh, companies today seem relatively small, it was a great outcome for investors. It was a great outcome for founders. And it just felt that, um, you know, it would afford us the changes that we want, uh, including for me, the ability to move to New York, uh, you know, work for a couple of years in the company that acquired us, but ultimately to start a new a new venture, which is something I always intended to do. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into that in, in a minute. Uh, I want to ask you here, when, when we're thinking about the M&A process, did you guys decide that, hey, we're going to do an M&A process and we're going to reach out to people and get, you know, gather some interest and perhaps some competitive uh, bidding? Or did you guys got the inbound interest first and then that kind of like triggered the M&A process? How was this for you? It was inbound first. So we had inbound interest and uh, then we had actually a, a couple of folks uh, inbound, but it was inbound interest. So how, how, how long did it take from the minute or the moment that you got that inbound to the moment where the acquisition was uh, complete? You know, it, it was months. It wasn't immediate uh, because we did have the option of raising money, uh, which we did discuss. And we were kind of in the throes of trying to see if it was it made more sense to just keep going, uh, opening an office uh, in, in the U.S. and so forth. Um, you know, less than, I think, seven or eight months, but but it wasn't immediate. So we had some optionality. Uh, you know, we didn't have immediate consensus as to which which path we wanted. Um, so we kind of slow rolled it, but it wasn't an overnight exit. Uh, we got inbound interest. Uh, we did go out and talk to other folks, uh, about their interest. There was a few parties and we pursued, um, we pursued kind of a, a dual path, uh, of potentially raising, uh, additional funding, uh, as well as exiting. Got it. So then what, what ended up being the terms of the transaction with CA technologies that you can disclose? Yeah, so so obviously, like most transactions, uh, they're under under NDA. Uh, I think some of it is public and disclosed in um, uh, in the press release by uh, by CA, which is now part of Broadcom. Uh, but ultimately, I think there was a base price uh, that was great for the investors and the founders. Uh, there was an earnout um, that was great for the staff that continued on, which I think was one hundred percent of the staff uh, stayed on. Uh, most folks had a three-year vest. I stayed on for two years. Um, CA was nothing but um, uh, uh, very courteous in the transaction. They they kept the company intact. They made its own division. 
they relocated me with a green card to New York where they had their headquarters in, uh, in Manhattan. Um, they gave me a role that I wanted, which is to basically focus on identifying companies for acquisitions. So I got a better sense of kind of the business casing and the process for uh, kind of the reverse. Uh, so it was terrific. And it was a great outcome for um, uh, for Layer 7. Without going into the details that are kind of under NDA, you know, the company grew over three times from a revenue standpoint. Uh, the staffing grew almost three times. Uh, I think the people that um, came over with the acquisition, which I think was all the staff, the majority of them stayed on. Uh, right through the Broadcom acquisition. So I think it was a good outcome uh, for the investors, the VCs. As I mentioned, it was the VC company of the year. It was a good outcome for the founders. Uh, it was a good outcome for the employees. Um, and it left a lasting legacy, which continues today. It's still one of the top kind of brands in the API management, API security space, along with MuleSoft and Apogee. So that's uh, there is still some remnant of it out there in the marketplace. Very cool. And I believe that the reported price was close to 200 million. So uh, very, very, very nice. So Dimitri, now, you know, that, that you know, we've touched kind of like on your first journey with the uh, e-tunnels now with layer seven on layer seven, your first uh, real uh, exit. If you had to do, you know, things, you know, over again, you know, when we're thinking about an M&A transaction, you know, perhaps, you know, given what you had learned with the uh, acquisition of layer seven, what would you do differently? Well, one thing I would do differently is I'd build a company in the U.S. as opposed to Canada, which obviously was one of the factors for me to move to, to the U.S. I think there's just more velocity, there's more volume, uh, there's more maturity in terms of infrastructure in the U.S. Uh, so that was, that was a factor and a consideration um, for me wanting to leave Canada as much as I love Canada. I remain a Canadian citizen. Uh, my family is there. Uh, but that was, that was one thing. Uh, I think another thing that um, became kind of readily aware is, while we were right about uh, the ultimate use case and the need, we were wrong about the timing. And I think, uh, you know, the lasting lesson for me was really about finding a business where there would be some kind of catalyzing event, where there would be some forcing function um, that would encourage spend so you didn't have to wait four or five years uh, for the market to form. And so those, both those lessons were obviously considerations in, uh, in building big ID. And you then went to obviously big ID is the next venture. Uh, but before talking about big ID, you've been very active as an investor in early stage companies. Um, and you know, I've seen that you've been involved in angel groups as well and so forth, but what I, what I want to ask you here after investing in all these companies and, and just out of curiosity, how many companies would you say that you have invested in like a rough estimate? Uh, probably eight. I haven't actually invested it since I started big ID. I think there was a period for two years that I was more active after, um, selling and before starting big ID. So yeah. roughly about eight or nine companies. So let's talk about pattern recognition really quickly. What are the three ingredients that give you the sense that a founder has what it takes to make something meaningful? You know, so one thing is ambition, right? I think uh, not all my investments have done great, but the ones that have, have a founder that wants to go big. Uh, they're ambitious, they're aggressive, they're assertive. Um, you know, there is no replacement for that quality. Um, secondly, I think as much as possible, they kind of surround themselves with other folks that want to be successful, whether it's advisors, uh, maybe additional early investors that share that common vision and ambition. Um, 
So I would say those are probably the two biggest qualities. Uh, now I've invested at different stages. Some companies were a little more than you know slides, and others you know had product and uh, and revenue. Uh, clearly, the further along that that pathway towards product revenue, some type of confirmation, the more successful those outcomes have been. But I would say the number one thing is really just having that. Uh, I'm going to go go back to the '80s here. That eye of the tiger. Um, you know, it's that notion that you really want to succeed and that you're you're willing to kind of push the envelope uh, and not settle. And I think that desire. You know, it, it, it's something that in me uh, kind of remained true at, at layer seven through those kind of four years of wandering the desert. Um, and uh, I think it's an important quality when you're investing in somebody else. Got it. Got it. So big ID, your next and most recent rodeo. How, how did you come up with the concept? How was that uh, incubated? Yeah, so I've always leaned towards kind of maybe because of my physics background, kind of techier things, right? I think they, I always felt they were a little bit more defensible. I think the harder, you know, the, the less likely you're going to get into a race around who could just raise the most money. And so, you know, one thing that struck me so when I was at CA, um, CA, uh, and I was basically running a security strategy for their security business which is largely an identity business, meaning that they have a variety of products in the identity and access space. And part of my role was I had a small team and we identified uh, companies to both partner, potentially acquire, things of that sort. Um, but one thing that struck me is while I was seeing a lot of companies focused on the problem of authentication, authorization, single sign-on, all the traditional IAM kind of capabilities, I really wasn't seeing anything focused on the problem I was reading about on my commute to work. So I live in Westchester, which is a bedroom community just uh, north of the city. And what I read about in the headlines in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times on my train into the city was about all this data that was being stolen, being lost, being misused. That always made the masthead in all of these papers. And yet what I was looking at when it came to companies was really things that were more about operational efficiency, things that were answering a problem like Sarbanes-Oxley from 2006. I didn't really see anything focused on the problem of identity security. And it got me wondering, why am I seeing so, so much around identity management, but not a lot around identity security, when identity security seems to be the thing that journalists and consumers are most fearful of. And so as I started thinking about starting my new venture, originally I thought I'd give three years at CA, but I started, you know, I, I actually went through four acquisitions uh, while I was there in terms of companies we bought. And frankly, I was always jealous of the people we were acquiring and I kind of wanted to be back on the other side. So about a year and a half in, I started thinking about what I wanted to do next and started kind of networking in, uh, in New York to kind of get, you know, get to know folks. But as part of that, I started thinking about the problem space and realizing that there seems to be a gap, a white space between the protection of personal information and the technologies that are out in the market. There just wasn't anything purpose-built for the protection of information. And there was one other ingredient uh, that was kind of an important catalyst for me. And it was an important catalyst because I felt it would be a catalyst for purchasing. Over the horizon in Europe, across the Atlantic, 
I knew about this new regulation was, that was taking shape called GDPR. I don't think the final name was, uh, was defined. Uh, they were still working through what the fines would be. But what was important about it is there was already this kind of drumbeat that uh, among the 28 members, member states in Europe, in the European Union, that there needed to be a better way to protect personal information. So here I was realizing there's a gap because I'm reading about, you know, this lost, misused, abused data on my train ride in. And here at the same time, I'm only looking at companies focused on a 2006 Sarbanes-Oxley problem and realizing that, hey, over the horizon, there's going to be this new law. And this new law was going to come with fines for not doing something about protecting personal information. So it was that triangle of activities. You, you saw this catalyzing event, this fortune, forcing function, this regulation that was just over the horizon. There was this need that was pretty plain and evident on my train ride in, uh, and one that you know I experienced, my spouse experiences. And then secondly, there seemed to be just a lack of solutions. And so I think it was those three factors that started getting me thinking about this problem. And once I left uh, CA on my kind of second year anniversary, I reached out to somebody I worked uh, with there who ran identity products. And, you know, I started basically talking to him about this and getting his impression and thoughts around, around this idea because he had a lot of experience. He came from the identity world. And then we basically workshopped it just the same way you would workshop maybe a play or a movie uh, over a course of a few months. But we knew there was something there because, again, it had three important qualities. We knew there was a, a dearth of technologies or products that actually addressed this. Uh, we knew there was a need, as, as evident by, by the kind of the articles, but as you know, pretty plain to most people. And we knew that there was going to be regulations, maybe starting in Europe, but probably extending elsewhere really focused on that protection of personal information. And so that was the genesis. Now, it took a few months to take shape and, and get you know, manifest as a, as a slide deck that we could take to, uh, to investors. But it was really those kind of three factors. And, um, you know, kind of by within six months, uh, we, had raised, uh, we had raised money and we got to work on building Big ID. And, you know, one thing that is interesting here is that you guys obviously started the business in 2016. But it was much later when we would start to see this uh, new regulation being implemented and, and the likes of Google or Facebook having to pay billions and billions of dollars in fines. So basically, you know, at that point, you know, perhaps I think it was like early this year or last year uh, is when it's all over the press and you're able to ride the wave. But I guess you guys were able to do this earlier. So how would you say that, you know, when you're like dealing with, let's say, customers hiring or perhaps investors how did it change for you like the before, you know, all this press around Facebook and Google and the fines, you know, how you were operating and educating people versus, you know, how things are now? So, look, when we started, I think we were telling them about this thing in Europe. And, you know, you could tell a lot of people in the U.S. about things in Europe and their their eyes go glazy. They don't really know what regulations going there. As far as they're concerned, Europe is where you go to see some nice churches uh, for two weeks in the summer you know, every every couple of years, uh, nobody followed the regulations. And frankly, the further west you went, like Silicon Valley, the more they stared back at you glassy eyed. So when we first were kind of talking about this need to better protect personal information and manage the privacy of data, um, and that there was this thing over the horizon that was going to, you know, make people do stuff, 
people didn't really buy it. They didn't know what we were talking about. Very few Americans seemingly read European newspapers like The Guardian or The Times. Uh, and certainly as you go further west, I would say that percentage even decreases. And so, you know, we found, I think, a couple of early stage enterprise investors that believed in me and my co-founder as much as anything else. Uh, you know, I think they may have had the exact same reservations about the, the business problem, but felt that, look, at the end of the day, if you find somebody passionate and somebody, you know, thoughtful about something and somebody, you know, interested in building a big business, as, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of angel investing, those are the qualities you want. And I think we found some investors that were willing to make a bet uh, and they made a bet. And so we, we closed our seed funding just off some slides uh, in uh, February 2016. Then we hired our first developer uh, in March of 2016 and then our second in April. And we started getting to work. The one thing I will say for us, we had the benefit of a regulation, right? This thing that became known as GDPR was pretty prescriptive in terms of, well, look, you need to do this. And uh, so for us, it wasn't just kind of like we knew there was going to be certain use cases that no technology existed to address. So if you buy into the fact that privacy was going to become a big problem, and frankly, I bought into it, right? Maybe Europe was kind of like um, the clarion call or the canary in a coal mine. But at the end of the day, a lot of people are worried about their data. And so we thought that this was going to expand not just to the U.S., but globally. And again, the tooling that you need to be able to give those, those individuals as consumers and employees the assurance around their data privacy and protection just didn't really exist. So, so we obviously believed in it. Um, we felt that it had echoes of you know, the, the technology innovation around Sarbanes-Oxley in 2006, uh, which is largely the entire identity and access universe of products. And uh, we got started. But, you know, it was hard. Uh, for the first year and a half, I think, again, people didn't really know what we were talking about. Um, you know, they didn't think it was a big problem. It only started changing in early part, maybe late 2017, early 2018, as privacy became something that was kind of in front of you. Everyone started talking about it. And then kind of our business took off, you know, our financing took off, everything kind of started taking off uh, just last year. So not long ago, but, um, uh, but yeah, you know, I think so it was a year instead of four years of wandering the desert. Uh, there was kind of a year and a bit of uh, kind of uh, proselytizing. And then, uh, and then we started seeing some of the, the fruits of that investment. Because how much capital did you guys raise this time? So when we started, we raised two. Um, and the two was really just about building a prototype. So that was in early 2016. Um, and then once we started closing business in the second half of 2017, we started getting investor interest. And so we ended up uh, closing our Series A uh, in January, but by that, in January of 2018. But by that point, you know, people were already talking about this. Um, you know, people didn't necessarily know what product or what, but people started talking about this. And then, you know, we started not only closing more business, but we started getting recognition. So from being a backwater that nobody talked about in a company in New York, which is still a little bit unusual for a security networking company, um, we started getting recognition from CB Insights. We won the RSA Innovation Sandbox. Gartner named us a cool vendor. 
And lo and behold, we got interest in a B round. So, you know, five months after closing our A round, we closed a 30 million B round. Uh, and so all of a sudden, a company that only had a little bit of money, a couple of developers in Israel, a very kind of minimal uh, prototype with some early customers, uh, raised a bunch of money. We started hiring. We started growing. And again, not a long time ago. We're, this is, we're still in 2018. Yeah. So I think we closed our B round in June, a year ago. But in that year, you know, we've expanded. We've gone from, I think we were eight people at the beginning of 2018 we're over 108 now. Um, so we've expanded. We've gone global. Um, you know, we had a, a couple of engineers in Israel, myself, uh, by my lonesome in uh, New York. Uh, today we have um, a couple dozen people here in New York. We have staff across the U.S. We have staff in Brazil. We have staff in Singapore. We have a large engineering team in Israel. We have staff across Europe. So we've grown pretty rapidly um, through both, you know, investing, but also customers. We've closed a lot of notable uh, customers because the thing that we kind of bet on, I guess now three years ago, that this would become a problem, it, it really has, right? And I think it's jumped over the Atlantic into the U.S. and jumped over from the U.S. to Singapore, Japan, Thailand. Privacy has become kind of a global concern uh, as evidenced, uh, you know, by anybody that's watched the FA conference from Facebook or Google's uh, conference, it's become a, a huge issue. And the tooling and technology necessary to kind of account for the data you collect and process on individuals has not been very mature. The problem didn't exist. And so we were kind of in the right time, right place. But I do want to stress it wasn't an accident. This was all kind of there's some forethought put into it. So, so I mean, you were talking about this, uh, you know, rewinding a little bit here. Uh, it only took five months to go from the A round to the B round. Typically, when people raise money is to uh, take them for 18 to 24 months. Why did you guys raise the B round so immediately after the A round? I think you always, so one, it was available. Uh, B, uh, the terms were great. Uh, C, the valuation was terrific. Um, and uh, the other thing is it gives you, um, you know, we felt we wanted to build a business, right? I've already had an exit under my belt. Um, so I was more inclined to keep going. Um, it would give us have to invest earlier. Um, it would give customers confidence. So we tend to sell to um, larger entities. Um, so it just seemed like, you know, money was available under good terms um, uh, with a good valuation. And it would give us that pop. It would give us that notability. Um, it's something that people recognize, right? Today, whether we like it or not, how much you raise, how frequently you raise is a consideration. You know, people read TechCrunch and Forbes and other publications and the talk about this kind of thing. And so, yeah, it just seemed opportune and it was relatively easy with the same data room and like nothing had really changed. So we did it. And to be honest, it was, a, it was the right decision. We got a forward looking valuation. We got a lot of capital to be able to invest earlier. Uh, that investment earlier allowed us to accelerate from a revenue standpoint faster um, and grow, go bigger. Um, and today I would argue we have a reasonable brand, uh, not just in the U S but, uh, also in, internationally. So then for the people that are listening, you know, especially for these founders that are, you know, at it, uh, Dimitri, what would you recommend raise all the money that you can or raise the money that you need? 
I think that you look, I, I'm a, and this is why I moved to the States versus Canada. I went through the need, need model. You know, it's very much like the healthcare system in Canada. You know, I did that already. I think part of, part of the American psyche is you want to go big. And I do think that, uh, you know, it may sound fanciful and a little bit sarcastic, but it has values. Companies at the end of the day are betting on you as an organization. They want the confidence and assurance that you're going to be around, that you're going to have the wherewithal to engineer what they, what they need, even if you don't have it immediately, right? If you're missing that of this feature. So there's a tremendous amount of benefits. Now, obviously, you have to consider valuation. So I don't think you should, you know, raise at the same valuation you just closed on two, three months later. But if somebody is willing to give you a forward-looking valuation and you know you have uses uses for that capital, whether it's growing sales, whether it's growing engineering, whether it's introducing new products, I, I would always lean on the side of taking that money. Now, you do close out some possibilities. Maybe you're not going to get acquired uh, right away, right? You close off certain, certain doors. Uh, but again, if you do want to build a big big business, I think it's always advantageous to take sooner than later. Got it. Got it. And and then I wanted to ask you here, um, if like the data and privacy um, environment and, you know, the market, like where do you think it's heading? Because I mean, I mean, it's kind of like, um, you know, it makes me very uncomfortable that people know, you know, and, and of everyone, right? You know, like they know the temperature in your house. They know the websites that you're visiting. They know the emails that you're sending. So, I mean, it's like, there's no privacy anymore. So where do you think data and privacy as a whole, you know, is, is heading? So look, we believe that it's foundational, right? I think it's personal, right? It's about personal data, but you are your data. That data is the representation of you inside of a company. And I think what we've learned from Amazon over the last kind of decade is that every company is becoming a data company. You know, where they keep their physical servers doesn't matter as much. Where they rent office space doesn't matter as much. What differentiates them is the data. Having said that, for the last kind of five years, most of these companies have been focused on accumulating as much data as they can. This is that whole kind of big data trend uh, that gave rise to companies like Cloudera and, and Hortonworks and so forth. And now I think there's that realization that with that, with that accumulation of data ha- comes new responsibilities. And so what Big ID provides is a way for companies to better account for the data they collect and process on individuals, being able to account for that data so they can be more accountable to their customers, their employees, their clients. Believe it or not, that type of accounting doesn't exist for data. And if you think about there's an analogy that I like to sometimes use, which is think, think back to kind of 1910 and kind of before 1920. There was no systems of standardized accounting for financial transactions. And so fraud was rampant. And so things like GAAP were introduced almost 100 years ago to provide standards for how organizations account for their revenue, for their income, for their expenditures. And in a similar way, data is the new currency for most businesses. You know, sometimes people talk about data as the new oil. But the reality is that data is a little bit different from oil. Data belongs to a person. It has attribution. And so you need to be able to understand the value, but at the same time, preserve the security and privacy of that information. And you can't do any of that without having a framework for accounting for what data you collect, for what data you process, for what data you share, for what data you dispose. 
And that's really what Big Idea is providing. That's our big idea is that we provide organizations this holistic approach to know their data because their data is potentially the most toxic thing or it can be their most valuable thing. But how do you do it in a, in a way that balances uh, uh, insecurity or security uh, with value? Got it. So, so one thing that I typically ask the, um, the guests that we have on the show is, um, you know, obviously you have um, a wealth of knowledge here, Dimitri, on, on building and scaling companies. Uh, I wanted to ask you if you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a conversation with your younger self, where you would have the chance to give yourself one piece of business advice, what would that piece of advice be and why before launching a business? You know, not, 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 not to be, um, uh, well, I think, I think when, when somebody offered us to buy the company eight months into the company before we had product, I probably should have taken it. Uh, the other piece of advice is really, um, uh, is really just in terms of your behavior towards others, right? I think, um, you know, I've always been driven, but I think it's important to be able to manage, uh, balance that with a degree of respect uh, and thoughtfulness in terms of how you relate to both your uh, co-founders, uh, employees, investors, clients. Um, you know, one of the one of our kind of standard statements, we, you know, probably the top line, we have a set of value statements at Big ID. And the first one is really about caring. And that's reflect the, you know, the way we think about uh, taking care of our customers, but also taking care of one another. And I do think that that is something that probably the old me, the 20, 27 something, you know, didn't, didn't value as much as the, as the 40 something person does. Got it. Got it. And for the people that are listening, Dimitri, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Sure. So they could email me at uh, dsirota at uh, Big ID. They could obviously reach out to us over Twitter uh, at Big ID Secure or over LinkedIn. Uh, we're available in all the media channels. Channels. They can even find us on Instagram. Amazing. Well, Dimitri, thank you so, so much for being on the DealMaker Show. Thank you very much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.